There's a little-known part of Hollywood that most people are not aware of, known as the audience test preview. The recently released book, Audienceology, reveals this for the first time. Our podcast series, Don't Kill the Messenger, brings this book to life, taking a peek behind the curtain. And now, join author and entertainment research expert, Kevin Getz. Welcome, everybody. Power in Hollywood comes in many forms. For example, there's the financial, creative, political, social, or media power. And there can also be a blend of multiple powers. Or some can have different types of power at different points in their career, like my guest today, the legendary Peter Bart. After starting his career as a staff reporter for The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times, Peter entered the movie business and was in one of those rare seats at Paramount Studios in the 60s and 70s, responsible for such classic films as Rosemary's Baby, True Grit, Harold and Maude, The Godfather, and Chinatown. Following his years as a studio executive at Paramount and MGM, as president of Lorimar Productions, and then as a producer, Peter held a position as editor-in-chief of Variety magazine for almost three decades and was one of the most influential journalists in the industry. Over the years, he has also authored nine books, and he's been a TV show host and a screenwriter. In 2016, Peter moved to Deadline, where he's still a columnist and is a member of Penske Media Company's Board of Advisors. There's a funny joke that Peter Goober made in 1997 at a gala tribute to Peter. He said to the audience, Will everyone here who owes Peter a favor for having killed a negative story please remain seated? The room filled with Hollywood's heaviest hitters erupted in laughter. Everybody stayed in their seats. I am so honored to talk to this icon of the industry, a titan, really, who understands this business like no one else. Peter, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate those kind words. <laughs> those words, by the way, are all true. You started as a journalist, as a young guy. How did you get into it? What was the impetus for that? I loved asking questions as a kid. And I thought, if you're a journalist, if you're lucky enough to get a good job, you can get away with asking outrageous questions of important people. And they have to respond. And from day one, to my amazement, I managed to get good jobs and asked outrageous questions. I remember when I, as a kid, joined the New York Times, early on, President Kennedy was murdered. And I remember in a meeting where different reporters were assigned follow-up stories. And so one of the news editors said, Bart, you're calling the Supreme Court. Ask him how they reacted to this tragic assassination of the president. And I realized, boy, my dream has come true. Right at all. I can call every Supreme Court justice. They could say no comment, but if, yeah. if they didn't say no comment, they'd give you an answer. And with the New York Times, they always said some sort of comment. So I was spoiled from the start. Well, let me ask you this. So you are covering Kennedy. You're covering Kennedy assassination. You're covering important stories. Ultimately, move into the business that we love so much and have so much fun being a part of. What, as a kid, are you thinking about movies, about television? Like, where were you at that point in your life as a youngster? Did you have a passion for it? 
I did not. I was not really a movie nerd. I enjoyed listening to radio. People did that in those oh, days. Oh, yes, radio. <laughs> I'd go to movies, and I liked the awe of the business. But I was really interested in other things. I was, among other things, interested in business and economics. I went to the London School of Economics. Two years on scholarship. I, as an undergraduate, went to Swarthmore College. Well, that's a very good school. I love it dearly. But when I got out of London School of Economics, I had the old choice. Do you go to film school? I follow your interests. And I confess my interest was more in business and in, even when I started writing about movies, the business of movies fascinated me from the start. Mind you, I did see lots of movies and I loved the good ones, but my initial motivation was more driven by my fascination with the chaotic numbers of this business. You mean like how movies got made or how they were financed, how much they cost? Well, you see, when I joined the New York Times and after working in New York for some time, they sent me to California on this mission. They said, look, television's on the rise. Movies is a dying business. Don't write about movies because they won't be around much anymore. The audience is all gone to television. My job in California was to write about the rise of Ronald Reagan, to write about the, the race issues, racial tensions were rising in Los Angeles. I covered the Watts riots, for example. And I was allowed to write one article a month, and that's all about movies for the New York Times, because the business, I was told, was passé. Then when I started to meet important people in the business and see the changes that were happening in the mid-60s, I realized far from being passé, a whole new form of movies was evolving. So it was a thrilling time, and typically the New York Times had it wrong. I can only imagine, how does a guy from the New York Times and sort of, let's call it serious journalism, move into a studio position? How did you get that job? Like so many things in, in Hollywood, it happens through the people you knew. I mean, Bob Evans was a dear personal friend of mine. He's a very serious young man. In that era, he's such a different person than the image of Bob Evans as the showman and the, the sort of superstar character. He was then a very earnest, serious young man. He was in, trying to get a career going as a producer. He was and in the Schmatter business. He, his, he and his brother... Were in, Evan Pacone? Were, were important people. They made a lot of money in dresses. Bob hated the business, though. He would l look dreaded when he'd have to <laughs> go into a, a meeting about that. He always wanted to be an important person uh, on the business side. He wanted to make movies happen. And, of course, he did have a brief career as an actor and was the star of a couple of movies and as he said to me right off the bat, he says, I have no talent as an actor, and I keep getting these unbelievable roles. He even played Irving Thalberg. And he said to me, playing Irving Thalberg, I realized I am more like him. I want to be him. I don't want to be the actor playing him. Sherry Lansing said the same thing as her as an actress. <laughs> but that's bizarre. That's sort of some sort of weird psychological transference. I never quite understood. Well, Bob was, as I remember, and I didn't meet him until the late 80s, was a character. But, man, 
I thought he was, if you had to sort of put a picture to the stereotypical, in the best sense of it, mogul, it would have been Bob Evans. Right. But when I first knew him, was quite a different person. And when he was offered the job of being the head of production at Paramount, which was weird, and he said to me, look, I have no qualifications for this job. I would like you to come with me because you're the only person I know who has less qualifications than oh, I Oh, that's funny. So I said, that's crazy. But more important, the business was changing so radically. One of the first pictures that we saw as friends together was Midnight Cowboy. And we looked at each other and, and said, this an X-rated play, picture is going to win an Oscar and is going to change the way people thought about movies. And the change was so breathtaking. Paramount at that time was making Westerns starring Elvis Presley. Still. It was ridiculous. That art. was the end of that era. It yes. was just coming on the end of that era. So, so Bob and I figured we could get away with anything because the studios were essentially broke. Paramount didn't make Midnight Cowboy. Who did? No. United Artists released it due to a wonderful fluke. Oh, because but, Michael Childers is one of my husband and my dearest friends. Right. And, and of course, his husband was John Schlesinger. So and, he's still talking so much about that movie and how unbelievably forward it was and ahead of its time. Yeah. Ratso Rizzo, right? <laughs> I actually knew Schlesinger before I knew Childers. And John was a brilliant, fast. John Schlesinger was a great director. But he was a bit lost. He wanted to make a picture in America. He didn't understand America or New York. And Midnight Cowboy was a great accident of history. Wow. Okay. You mentioned before, while we were setting up the studio here, because it's right next to Universal, that, oh, I have memories of going up and seeing Lou Wasserman. And you mentioned everyone jumped into action to get you through the gate. What was your relationship with Lou Wasserman? Why would you go see him? Ever wondered what it takes to make it in the movie business? Peel back the curtain with 4-6 success filmmaking. 4-6 Success Filmmaking is where filmmakers share their stories and the secrets. It's beyond competitive out there. There have been movies that it's taken me 10 years to get made. Don't wait to create. Like, you've got to just keep making stuff. Tune in to 4-6 Success Filmmaking for your dose of cinematic realness, direct from the voices that have lived it. Well, again, as a very young person at the New York Times, with that warning that you shouldn't write too much about movies because they're dying, we got to know each other because I was a kid reporter on the Times. He wanted to to be mentioned to be in the New York Times. He wanted to be covered fairly. And because the business was changing so fast, he saw me, I think, to a degree, says this this kid is an opportunity really for us to get better press. Did you forge kind of a friendship? We did, yeah. Even after his retirement, I would have lunch with the great Lou Wasserman once a month. And I enjoyed his company. By that time, he'd go into a room. People would freeze. I can't help think of the scene in The Fablemans. It, I don't know why this reminded me. 
of when the character went to see John Ford. Yeah. And to me, it was the best scene in the movie. Yes. And he walks in and the unbelievably four-time Academy Award winner, John Ford, is like saying, hey, kid, go over to that picture. That dynamic somehow just played in my head. And Peter Bogdanovich was one of the first people who, as a reporter, who I got to know. And then, of course, I didn't realize that he yearned to be a film director. But but uh, Bogdanovich was the ultimate f- film nerd and was sort of the model for in a number of those pictures for the young up-and-coming director. But I always felt that when I got to know him, he should have had my job. Because I wasn't prepared. Yeah, why is that? I wasn't prepared to choose what books to buy, what pictures to green light, what stars. Well, how the hell did you end up doing it, though? Because Evans and I were running Paramount. But you weren't just running Paramount. You were reinventing probably what I would consider, if not the golden age, certainly the second golden age of Hollywood, ushering in the 70s, which was the the beginning of the independent film movement and a change in the way we interacted and mm-hmm. perceived and audiences really embraced film. The way Is it I just an accident? We gave it a lot of thought. Look, I, I was a journalist in this job at Paramount. I felt the way I could contribute most would be to buy the rights to really interesting novels that were coming out. And to base films on the good stories in those novels. And what were some of the characters? Well, that's when I read The Godfather and a really sort of mediocre script that nonetheless I felt had great opportunities called Love Story. And when I I bought the rights to Love Story, I went to the, the writer of the script and said, look, I want you to write a novel. Novelize this, because it would be a success, a novel. Bob and I believed that if you could make a book into a hit, a movie would come out of that. I think that's a thought that many people today have forgotten. They don't understand the value of books, both in terms of they're known, that people talk about them, and and secondly, they have stories to tell. Because most directors today, of particularly of streamers, have no idea how to structure a story. So I started buying novels, and Evans liked the novels that I started buying. And even like The Godfather, we bought it as a 60-page outline. I was going to say, such not an obvious movie at that time, right? What struck you as the sort of the DNA of that that you thought would make a successful picture? I thought that the story was brilliantly constructed. And I thought it was an important novel about a family and a great love story and about the way the Sicilians found a way of adapting their codes to that of American capitalism. So the relatability is probably really in that family dynamic and what we would do anything to the family first. But here's what's misunderstood about The Godfather. And I don't want to get caught up in just talking about that. But the background of The Godfather is totally misunderstood. What was interesting about it was that it was a brilliantly researched gangster story. But the trouble was that, and Bob Evans said it right up front, 
gangster movies are old-fashioned. That's, yes, that's Warner Brothers a generation ago. So how can we make this into not just a gangster movie, but a different kind of narrative? So we decided we would make an art picture, not a gangster movie. A friend of mine named Francis Coppola, a beat-up old actor who had gotten cold named Brando, we set out to make a $6 million, not a $60 million art movie called The Godfather. And we set it in development. And one terrible thing happened just as we had finished the screenplay and we were set to go with Coppola and so forth. The nightmare happened that the book got published and instantly became the number one book in the world. So the studio said, you can't make this as an art movie. You have to make this as a big commercial gangster movie. Who, Charlie did that? Or yeah, said Charles Bluron was the, the, the chairman of... So he said, you got it all wrong. This You're making an art movie out of a great gangster movie that should be a superstar movie. And the whole idea of doing an art picture on The Godfather was sort of a radical idea. But if you, you see the movie today, you could see in every way, in terms of it's even its production details, its cast, its pace. It's an art movie. It's absolutely intentional and deliberate. And I just saw it in the recoloring or remastering of it at the Academy. And Francis was there with Talia, and they presented it. And it's even better than I ever remembered it being. Like, it's so relevant. And many of your movies, I think of Chinatown now, did you find that as a book? Yes, but we wouldn't know it on The Godfather, though, because you've often spoken that, and I think with validity, don't ever judge a movie until you see it with an audience. Oh. Now, The Godfather was weird because I remember even the the opening night, the premiere with a celebrity audience, when the picture was finished, there was total silence because the audience was sitting there and trying to figure, what did I just it's see? Stunned, yeah. It, was, it is not the movie I expected. What happened to this shoot 'em up gangster movie? We have seen this very idiosyncratic art movie. How did that happen? So this was one case, to your point, where if you saw the movie, even with an audience, there was sort of a shocked silence. People were surprised by it. They didn't react. Was it ever tested with an audience? It was not tested. That was prehistoric days. Many movies were tested. That really, because it was so... Specific and art-oriented. There was so much controversy about the editing of it because the studio tried to edit it to a shorter movie. The people who ran Gulf and Western... They had that much hands-on at that time? They felt it was too long and too arty. So they... (laughs) <laughs> they cut a version that was 20 minutes short, and it was a lousy movie. What did they goodness. know about filmmaking? Little. The, the com- <laughs> if you were a company that had made nothing but lousy movies for a generation, and all of a sudden you own the hottest bestseller in the world. I understand. I can understand that. Then you don't, you're in confusion. You don't know what to think. <laughs> anyway. I don't mean to get stuck on the God. No, no, no. I was asking about the audience, and I love what you said. Because you also are very, very vocal and have been in your career about this idea of don't believe the buzz. Don't believe the good or the bad buzz. 
I think it might have been connected, the quote that I remember reading, to the Oscars because, and I'm the same way, people will say, oh my God, it got a 10-minute standing ovation at Cannes, <laughs> or the Toronto Film Festival, they loved it. And I'm saying, okay, let's show it to real people and see what we really have. But the studios in that era of the 60s going into the early 70s did not understand testing, did not know how to read the audience and adjust the movie accordingly. So there were movies that we ran that played very weak. The test screenings were more you invited friends and family. And maybe now and then you showed it an audience in Pasadena. But it's very unscientific. Very unscientific. And the cards, were, they, no one knew how to write, ask the right questions. You've reinvented that whole science now. So we would have this experience of running a picture like Paper Moon. And people would say, well, what is that? Harold and Maud, we tested at, at Stanford with students. And people were a very cerebral audience. They, it was so different from movies of that epoch that sort of like half the audience would say, "What the hell was that?" The other half were in, <laughs> the other half were in tears, and so you know if you we in today Harold and Mort, I would love to have had the experience of taking that to you and saying. This is a strange movie. And we would have said, it's a streamer. Let's <laughs> <laughs> see. That's a perfect example it's of, of the kind of movie that's very personal movie that affects people emotionally. Uh, recent, recently, sorry to interrupt, recently uh, a filmmaker, very recently in the last uh, month or two, said to me, "This my movie is like Rosemary's Baby. It's like Rosemary. And I finally said, in all due respect, Rosemary's Baby would not be made theatrically today. Yeah. What do you think about that? Do you agree with me on that, that Rosemary's Baby probably couldn't get a theatrical release today? Rosemary's Baby would have been an ordinary horror picture today, and it would have been a streamer. So I had seen Roman Polanski's movies yeah. in Polish. <laughs> There's a brilliant perversity in Roman and his movies. And... I said to, to, to Evans, you know, if we took this material, which could be ordinary, and brought in a marvelously perverse director like Roman Polanski, we could end up with, again, a whole different kind of An movie. elevated horror An film. Eleva a really elevated and thoughtful and disturbing movie. I called Roman. I said, I have a movie for you. I want you to come to Hollywood. He basically said to me, no fucking way. I don't want to go to Hollywood. They're not going to let me make the kind of movie I want. I turned it over to Evans, who did this brilliant sell on him, and got Roman to come here. Unfortunately, now Roman, as you know, because of mm -hmm. uh, unfortunate activities, can't come, come to Hollywood today. So it's a tragedy because he's in his 80s. And I would love for him to come here. He's still making some good pictures and has over the years, thank God, in Europe. Brilliant, strange man. But once again, Rosemary's Baby, with that cast, would have tested. It would have been difficult to figure it out. Absolutely, because the story and the big idea has overtaken the unfolding and the character development and all of those things that have gone into so many of the great movies of yesterday. Yeah. It's really true. interesting to me. Before we leave Roman Polanski... I remember hearing a story about 
Mia Farrow and Sinatra. Can you share that with us? Well, this was Mia Farrow's big break. She'd never done a character of this depth as in Rosemary's Baby. So she was doing great. But the trouble is, in order to elicit a performance from her, Polanski, Ron Polanski, the director, was having 10 takes, 15 takes. There was many as 35 takes. In order to get to that performance. To break Mia down from being a television actress into being the character. But he was known for doing that always, right? Yes. Many, many takes. Like Stanley Kubrick, right? That's right. Exactly. So one day... An attorney shows up in my office who identifies an himself attorney? as an attorney. <laughs> he identifies himself as Frank Sinatra's representative. And he said, look, I want to be straight with you. Mia Farrow and Frank Sinatra, that's a new marriage. Frank wants to produce a picture and Mia is going to be the star. That will never happen if Polanski keeps doing 30 takes with Mia, and she's going to be a wreck, so she won't do my picture. So here's Frank Sinatra's message. It would be in the interest of your health and that of your family if you told Roman to limit to two takes. And I did not laugh at him, but I said, you know, what you're saying is so profoundly stupid that I'm not giving you a serious reply. If you want, I'll set up a meeting with you to say that to Roman and see what happens. He never took that up, and Roman... And you never mentioned anything to Roman at all? I I told him that Sinatra threatened to kill me. And and I believed it, because I knew Sinatra. I mean, I had, again, as a journalist, I had spent time with Sinatra. So I knew him and his friends. (laughs) I want to just ask you about Chinatown before we move out of Paramount, because Chinatown was such a seminal movie and revered by so many. What was the genesis of that? Well, Bob Town was a brilliant writer, and this came out of a collaboration with Bob and other writers. But again, it was a very dense story, and it was hard to stay awake through the screenplay because there was such details about esoteric subjects, the water distribution of water in California and Los Angeles. Could not be more of a boring subject on paper. Exactly. It was very difficult to get it through. Remember Paper Moon? Like Paper Moon set in the 30s, we intended to shoot it in black and white. You don't tell the chairman of the board (laughs) that you're making a picture like that. Most of the pictures that Evans and I made in that epoch, we made secretly. When we come back, I want to talk about the evolution into going back to journalism with Variety. We'll be back in a moment. Get a glimpse into a secret part of Hollywood that few are aware of and that filmmakers rarely talk about. In the new book, Audienceology by Kevin Getz. Each chapter is filled with never-before-revealed inside stories and interviews from famous studio chiefs, directors, producers, and movie stars bringing the art and science of audienceology into focus. Audienceology, how moviegoers shape the films we love. From Tiller Press at Simon & Schuster, available now. 
How did you get lured back into journalism? Mostly, how did you get to Variety, where most people in the last, say, 20 or 30 years know you from? Well, I had had four jobs in movies, and some of them were successful. A couple of them were not. But I really had, frankly, 15, 18 years and I was getting a little sick of being the guy who said yes or no. Because it sounds like a dream job, but it isn't. All of your relationships with filmmakers tend to be filled with tension because they're always they wanting they're, you know, the green light or the person who will say, I'm cutting your budget because it sucks. So, and frankly, after a period of time, those irritating relationships, I had had enough of that. Variety, which had been published for almost 100 years, always was owned by a family. And the paper was sold. There was a new parent company. And they came to me with a great deal. And they said, look, if you would reinvent Variety, we think that the paper has been going downhill in terms of audience and and finance. And we need a reinvention. So Here's the deal. Would you consider going back to journalism? And I thought, you know, that is fun. That sounds like a great job, particularly for this reason. There was a story to tell. There's a new narrative that Variety could own. And that is that in my epoch when I first started movies, the the power in film were in the filmmaker's hands. By the 80s, when the Variety thing came up, the power had shifted from the filmmakers to the deal makers. And there was a whole new story about the fact that suddenly the studios were being owned by people who themselves had never seen a movie. They were in it because they saw the profitability in the new film business. So I felt there was a great story to tell about movies where this generation of people like, say, Steve Ross, who basically had been an undertaker, and suddenly he owned Warner Brothers. I mean, there's a great new story to tell if you told it again. Marvin Davis was an oil man. Exactly. None of the new proprietors of movies were movie people. (laughs) So I felt, what a hell of a good story to tell. I'll take this job. fabulous I never thought I'd stay with it for 20 years, but I thought it was a good narrative to tell. And yet you were there for quite a while. Peter, I want to talk to you about the show with you did with Peter Goober because something that I've really considered and are still considering is uh, wanting to do a show on camera. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how that came to be. Why Peter Goober, who I really admire very much and have known also for a long time. Goober's this great character who we started at in the movie business the same week practically. He was a kid who was given this great job at Columbia. At the same time, I was starting at Paramount. And we got to know each other. Uh, he's 10 years younger than I am, but we, we, we shared the same um, stories about, about finding our way because neither of us was really qualified to do what we were, ended up doing. And so we became friends, shared laughs about the mistakes that we were making. It was called shootout. Right. Because the way it was staged, we would, for the first few minutes, argue about a trend, a phenomenon in the movie business 
or an experience that each and I had. And then we'd have guests. And we were worried as to what sort of guests would, would say, yeah, knowing that it was an argumentative show. It wasn't just a suck-up show about, you know, with the typical movie show. You We love your new movie. You're brilliant. And the minute it was on, after the first few weeks, everybody from Steven Spielberg to Francis Coppola to the top stars wanted to be on the show because they enjoyed the combat. They liked the fact that it was an argument. I mean, Robert Downey Jr. would come on and would say, you know, you did Chaplin, you did brilliantly, but you did the wrong angle. Why didn't you do it this way instead of that? Wouldn't that be Dickie Attenborough's problem, not <laughs> Robert Downey Jr.'s exactly. problem? <laughs> exactly. Well said. <laughs> and we would talk about, again, in, in your expertise, the way in which pictures were being released and misunderstood in their promotion and so forth. So we got very heavily for the first time an audience show that got into actually the distribution and promotion of movies. When you talk about the combative nature of the show, which to me is far more interesting than any other type of interview show, you as a journalist in your entire career, and I imagine from a boy, have had to endure a lot of criticism yourself. You have people like myself who've revered you over the years for many, many reasons. And I have many friends who think you are the most incredible man in the world. And I'm sure you've made a lot of enemies over the years because of what you've had to write. How did you reconcile that? I know I'm a guy who likes to be liked by everyone. You can't really have that if you're in your position, can you? That's very complicated. Your One's relationship to creative people becomes complicated because on the one hand, you want a writer, a young director, a producer, you want them to succeed. On the other hand, when they stumble, you're the one who has to come in and say, we have to cut your shooting schedule, you miscast this, your ending doesn't work. All of the things that you have to communicate to people. (laughs) And which is why this program is called Don't Kill the Messenger. Exactly, which is absolutely appropriate. The trouble is that if you are the head of production of a company, you are the messenger in a way, in even a worse way because you're not recommending things. You have in this awful situation, you are ordering things. And so much of your life is that of combat. Now, I didn't go into journalism because I wanted to be loved. I want, went into it because I thought it would be interesting to ask questions and tell stories, try to get behind the facade. And it's the same way, therefore, when you're a film executive, because once again, you can't afford to want to be loved. You're going to be hated much of the time, if not most of the time. So funny you say that because what I've evolved into and what I now realize is my sort of leitmotif, if you will, is getting to the truth. My years as an actor and then, of course, moving into what I did was to get underneath the surface. So what? So what? So what? To the point where you come up with the essence of the problem, of the issue, and then find positive solutions Mm -hmm. to recommend to fix something. Except when When it's not fixable. The terrible (laughs) thing is some pictures are brilliant because of the casting and our failures because of the casting. And if you see terms of endearment and it was brought to you for testing, 
That picture is brilliant because of the accent of Jack Nicholson and Shirley MacLaine are brilliant in those roles. And Deborah Winger. And Deborah Winger, who are not an unlikely person. On the other hand, how many pictures are brought to you that are so horribly miscast and there's nothing that you can do to change that? Well, I call that a DNA problem. And you're absolutely right. When I um, often bring test results back after a screening and they're okay, not great but they loved the characters. It just happened recently. They loved the chemistry between the characters, but there was a lot wrong with the, I guess the plot, meaning just, you know, which is actually very fixable or can be fixable, often without reshoots and sometimes with reshoots. But what you can't do is recast the entire movie. You're absolutely right. right. And that is part of the fabric of what you have. I go so far as to say, we learned this in the acting conservatory. I went to that casting, at least in the theater, is probably about 90% of the success of the production. In film, I would probably say it's to 80 to 85%. Yeah. Still a huge number or percentage of you got to get it right. But on the other hand, I've seen surveys now where audiences are asked, what determines your choice of a film to go see it or watch it? And it's like, of the audience says it's the actors. Correct. I mean, the whole thing has shifted around. So I'm not saying about the stars. I'm saying it's about the characters because that you can't manufacture. That has to be there. But you're absolutely right. Now they go because the big idea that motivates a big audience, that's the primary thing that motivates people. The other thing that motivates people, of course, is word of mouth. And word of mouth is driven by the sense of elevated, and I don't mean light, I mean elevated fun, elevated horror, elevated comedy, elevated special effects. Everything has got to go to that next level just as a ticket to entry now. Mm -hmm. It used to be you can get by with it, which is why when I asked you about Rosemary's Baby, but for the fact that Roman directed it, it probably couldn't work because it just doesn't have enough incidents in it. In, yeah, you know. that's right. But again, I think what today's audience is missing part of the experience, and I feel, this is, sounds ridiculous, I feel sorry for the audience in this way, <clears throat> that when I was on the New York Times as a young reporter, it was the end of that era when it was all about the big stars, whether it's Henry Fonda or James Stewart or the... the or any of the great actors and and Peter Sellers, <laughs> who was sort of being there. It was about the big stars, Burt Lancaster. Um, but even in the 80s, it was about the big stars. Stallone, was, Schwarzenegger, ending. Tom the, Cruise, Tom Hanks. You know, that's those right. But see, all of their deals at studios would help create the packages, finance the scripts, put the directors in place. So then they'd go to a major star and they'd say, here's a great project for you and it's yours. You've got to do it. That, by the 80s, even by the 70s, the stars had lost those contracts and they didn't have studios developing scripts for them. So they were thrashing around and with the exception of, again, you mentioned Tom Cruise, he was bright enough to realize his predicament and to develop his own projects and to be an active producer, he decided to guide his destiny and not be thrown among so many actors today in ridiculous roles. 100%. You and I, man, I love that you're part of the Tom Cruise fan club. Tom is one of my absolute favorite human beings. He is a terrific guy. He's a terrific 
actor and producer, and I'm so thrilled to have worked with him as closely as I have. So I, I cannot let this program end without saying that I have felt like I've known you for, and rather intimately, for about 43 years. Let me explain. Your nephew happens to be one of my very best friends on the planet, Roger Bart. And we went to school together. We went to the Acting Conservatory together. Roger is a majorly successful Tony Award-winning actor. Couldn't be more proud of him. I've become now, I think, uncle to his daughter, Eller, and couldn't be happier for that either since she's about to start as my second assistant. And as a result of that, I mean, I've been to your childhood home in Martha's Vineyard. I know your brother, I mean, and your sister-in-law and your other nieces and nephews. I've even met Scout, your daughter. You had no sense that I was alive. Correct. <laughs> For one thing, as you know, Roger Bard is an actor. He's a star. But like most actors, he doesn't confide a lot about his personal friends and the nuances of his emotional life. That's not what actors do. And Roger is a wonderful person, but he is first and foremost an actor. This is his fifth Broadway show, as you know, that started Back to the Future, the musical. Opening in August. Yeah. So it's not in Roger's mode to take me aside and say, by the way, I don't know if you know Kevin Getz, but he really is like my closest friend. <laughs> and uh, do you know him? He would never do that. You know what's so funny? You remind me so much of your brother, and I always thought he was like a genius. So I said, well, if he's a genius, then I guess Peter has to be a genius too. You guys really need to donate your brains to science, I think, because you're both so damn bright. And also, by the way, Roger's mother was another very bright woman. When Raj and I would talk about you, it would be as if you were this huge Hollywood mogul. And yet, he never asked you for help. He did it on his own. You bet. I mean, that's a really fair statement, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Roger's an actor. He's also a brilliant singer. And, and piano player. And, yeah. I know that because he was a singing waiter at the seafood shanty in Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. Back 40-something years ago. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Roger and I come from a family that's the opposite of these, these warm, loving families everyone knows and supports everyone else. The important factor in the Bart family is no one knows other members of the Bart family. It's a very distanced bunch of people. It's like a strange, it's not the same model, but it's like the sort of crusty New England family where you don't talk about your problems or your relatives. <laughs> and that is sort of the way I know when I was a kid, my parents were pleased that I was a member of the Martha's Vineyard Country Club. That was the important association to them. I was not born in Brooklyn. I wasn't this wonderful family like Woody Allen's and so forth. You know, that was not our upbringing. And what's so funny is that you and Roger are both these really incredible creative minds and didn't have that kind of upbringing. And yeah. yet you found that in yourselves and succeeded not having that. No, yeah. My parents were teachers. That's what they believed in. They believed in their discipline and they believed the importance of teaching. The entertainment business was totally removed. And Roger's father, they wanted him to become a great scientist and go to MIT. 
No, like they did. Yeah. So again, you know, parents who want your kid to go to MIT, that's not exactly a show business uh, preparation. <laughs> Let me ask you something, if I may. What's going on with theatrical movie going in the future? And I mean the not too distant future. Where do you think things are? I know I have very strong feelings well, about it, but yeah. you have had now six, seven decades in the business and can really give us perspective because you have seen disruptions throughout that time. The record, I would love to write a column for Deadline where I ask you that question because I think you're in a better position than most than any of us. Well, everyone asks me that question. And they ask you a dumb question, like, what is the difference between a movie and a streamer? Mm -hmm. Now, that's a very profound sort of dumb question. And uh, I'd love to talk to you about that. because Well, I we're think, going to lunch after this to discuss right. it. And I think your audience would love to... Do people still want to go to see movies in a theater? Yes, but, again, the people you are testing are people who see movies on their lap. And the movie-going experience, which I think is a rich experience, is simply not part of the lives of our grandchildren, for example. I call them digital natives. <laughs> That's a good expression. But that is an impairment, <laughs> I think, because that rich experience of seeing a movie with an audience and getting their feedback, even if it's like Parasite, I mean, I loved seeing Parasite with an audience that was half Korean. Oh, that because the probably reactions great. of people. Oh. I think that that kids today just see it alone. They don't understand how enriching it can be to enjoy the reactions and to sometimes be appalled the reactions of other people in the audience. That to me so reduces the experience of movie going. I feel sorry for that next generation. And at the same time, there is a great story recently that I heard of a major director who said his favorite movie of all time was Jaws. Right. And he said, and I've never seen it in a movie theater. Right. That's interesting. Because a great movie can withstand any platform, I think. It yes, withstand. it's enhanced it's a, for you know, sure. It's yes. embellished. Embellished. When you feel those around you laughing. I mean, in your book... You mentioned the experience of seeing Borat with an audience. There was something about Mary. Pictures like that where you had an audience convulsed. Correct. Now, that's different. You you can see, run the movie and think, you know, that's funny. Even what's love got to do with it. I remember when Angela Bassett as Tina Turner said, I don't want anything, just my name. The audience literally stood up. We were in Pasadena. The audience stood up in a wave like at a ball game. Yeah. And was like apoplectic. Right. You don't get that on your lap. Yeah. And that's tragic because the experience is different and diminished. Peter, what can I say except this has been an absolute pleasure and honor to have you here to speak with me about your recollections of some of these great movies, great times. As you said, I'm going to now use the word epoch. I love that expression. And please, please come back. Please memorialize everything you've done because our new generation needs to hear where the hell they've come from. So thank you. Well, given your experience and knowledge of the business, it's a delight to talk to you. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed our interview. I encourage you to check out Peter's deadline column and some of his films and books that we've discussed today. 
For other stories like this one, please check out my book, Audienceology, at Amazon or through my website at kevingets360.com. You can also follow me on my social media at kevingets360. Next time on Don't Kill the Messenger, I'll welcome the Academy and Emmy Award-nominated documentary filmmaker Yevgeny Afinievsky. Until then, I'm Kevin Getz, and to you, our listeners, I appreciate you being part of the movie-making process. Your opinions matter.